0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word together to the Revelation chapter 14. We've made our way all the way to chapter 14, but we're in a series of visions, a series of signs. In fact, there are seven of them, and we've already made our way through chapter 12 and chapter 13, and um, these visions will end, and we'll end up in a new section in chapter 15, verse 5, but we still have a few more things to learn from uh, this series of visions. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 this morning, so if you've had time to Find your way to Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Just follow along as I read God's Word. John says, Then I looked and behold. And that phrase, then I looked, is an indication that the scene has shifted away from what we've been studying. And I'll remind you of that along the way. And now he sees something new. And he he looks and he beholds on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. John tells us, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, we do thank You for the gathering of Your people, for the singing of songs and hymns and praises to You. We thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word. And I pray that You would open our hearts and our minds and our understanding so that we can know what You've revealed to us and know how it's supposed to comfort us, encourage us, rebuke us, or just give direction to our lives. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the songs that we can sing. Thank you that we can come before you, remembering that we are still a a sinful and needy people, but we can confess our sins and trust that you are faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us. That even though we are imperfect and called to be faithful, you still love us when we fail. And you discipline us as sons and daughters. And so let this time of reading and studying and thinking on your word be a time of corrective discipline and direction. And Lord, be pleased in our response. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever considered the significant amount of contrast that exists within our lives? Let's do a little experiment here. If I were to say a word, I wonder if you would respond together with all the same words. So I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to think of the contrasting word that comes to your mind most readily, and I want you to say it out loud, and we'll see if this is a failed experiment or not, all right? If I say the word new, you would respond with the word old. Somebody said something else? Troublemaker. Troublemaker. I don't know who said it, sorry. If I say the word wet, you say the word? If I say the word cold, you say the word hot, yes. And all the women said cold and all the men said hot, probably. If I were to say the word rich, you would say? Poor. poor. We live in a world of contrasts, and our brains naturally think in terms of these contrasts. And no two people are the same, no two opinions are exactly the same, no two experiences are exactly the same. And these differences, though they can be troublesome at times, in reality they make us, they don't make us weaker, they add richness to our lives and our experience. And and yes, sometimes that can be annoying when your wife is cold and you believe that the temperature is perfect, but on the whole, these basic differences are just simply part of life. And not only is our life filled with these contrasts, but the scriptures are filled with contrasts. The creature and the creator, the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, man and woman. Our reality, even though there are those who want to change that, our reality is fundamentally built upon these fixed and basic binary relationships. But the scriptures don't just draw attention to those things, they also, the scriptures also draw attention to the deeper spiritual contrast that we don't readily see with our eyes. Things like good and evil, angels and demons, the righteous and the unrighteous. Now over the last several weeks, we've been studying what I refer to as the upside down aspect of our world. The the series of visions that we've been studying thus far have focused specifically on the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work in the world. And and these visions are giving us something of an understanding of what's going on in our world by helping us to know that much of the sin in the world is being motivated by these spiritual forces of darkness. In chapter 12, we learned about the, the great dragon. The beast was what we learned about in Revelation 13, and just last week, we learned about the false prophet. These three, the beast, the the dragon, and the false prophet, they form something of a counterfeit trinity. They form an idol and a, a worldly kingdom and a worldly religion that is set up over to rival Christ and his kingdom and his gospel truth. That's what we've been studying the last few weeks. But this morning and in this vision, the focus shifts away from the valley of all of these dark realities to the mountain of Zion where the Lamb dwells with His righteous and redeemed people. And my purpose in preaching this passage this morning is to draw your attention to the contrast that exists between the forces of darkness in the world seeking to influence humanity, and the Lamb of God who redeems people out of the world for His glory. Those are the two things that we're going to focus on this morning. And let's look first back at chapter 14 and verse 1. Let's look at this uh, the, the shifting vision to the Lamb on Mount Zion and His 144,000 who were sealed with His name. That's what it says. John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb... With him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now we've met this lamb before, right? In fact, if you didn't know this, um, Lamb, the Lamb, is John's favorite code word, code name for Jesus. He he talks about it in his gospel. Uh, He talks about Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's relying upon an Old Testament understanding of the sacrificial lamb. And we've already met Jesus in the Revelation as the Lamb who was slain. Here's the scene, it goes all the way back to Revelation chapter 5, and John sees a vision of the throne of heaven, and in that vision he sees the one seated upon the throne who is to be God the Father, and God the Father has a scroll in his right hand, and when John sees the scroll, he begins to weep because he, because he knows that of all the people that are there, there is no one worthy to, to take the scroll and to break its seals and to allow its fullness to be realized in the world. Do y'all remember that vision? It's from a long time ago. But, but as John begins to weep, the text tells us that an elder comes to him as he sees this vision, and that elder says to him, weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of david has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders james says or john says i saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain so in one moment the lamb was not there in the next moment he's told behold a lion and then when he looks he sees a lamb There's a lot of contrast. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of vision language there. But John was introduced to the Lion of Judah, the one who holds the scepter. But he was also, when he turns to see it, he sees a lamb that was standing though he had been slain. And we know the imagery to that. Jesus was slain Upon the cross, he endured the wrath of God due to all of those who believe. He was slain to satisfy the justice of God, which sinners deserve. That's why Jesus was dying on the cross. He was not simply dying to set an example of what loving sacrifice looks like. He was dying to pay the price for all of those who will believe. He was taking upon himself the due penalty for my sins, Jesus was slain because it was his cup to drink, the Scriptures tell us. He was slain on the cross of Calvary in the place of his people. He was struck down and crushed for our iniquities. He gave his life willingly, but he is alive. That's why he's a a lamb who was slain, but he is now standing. He stands on Mount Zion because he was raised from death. He stands as a testament to the fact that his sacrifice accomplished everything that God had sent him to accomplish, and the Father puts his stamp of approval upon Jesus by raising him from the dead, saying, it is absolutely finished, all atonement has been made. He stands because even though he was slain, he lives. He suffered, he died as the Lamb of God, but he stands as our conquering King. So we've already met this Lamb. And John sees another vision of Jesus. Again, he refers to him as a lamb. He he refers to him as the lamb who is standing, but this time he's standing upon Mount Zion. And he's standing with 144,000 people who bear his name on their foreheads. Okay, so I've done this a couple of times along the way. There are plenty of believers, probably several in this room, who would believe that it is best to interpret this passage literally. And they would say something along these lines, although there may be variations in the views that they hold. They may say something like this. At the end of time, what this vision is telling us is that at the end of time, when the Lord comes back, He will physically return to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And there, with 144,000 hand-picked troops... He will take on the Antichrist and his host at the end of the world. That's that's a a general but fair uh, synopsis of what if you'd interpret this vision to be literal. And as you know, as you've been here with us, I don't hold to that position simply because I don't believe it's the best way to understand the book of the Revelation. The Revelation is a book of symbols, it's a book of visions, it's a book of pictures, and these pictures tell us a story. They tell a story to the people of God throughout the church age, and and they help us to understand what's going on in this already but not yet reality, this time that we live in. So the question to ask is this, what are we supposed to learn from this picture? What are we supposed to learn from this vision of Christ upon Mount Zion? Zion is one of the names used throughout the Bible to describe the true city of God. It's used to refer, all over the Scriptures, it's used symbolically or figuratively to refer to the place where God dwells with His people. And in some cases, it it, it looks forward prophetically to the final eternal city, where God and His redeemed will dwell together forever. So Mount Zion generally, specific, uh, generally refers to the place where God dwells with His people, but there are a lot of different ways that it's used, but that's ultimately its purpose and intention. And Mount Zion is understood to be this place that is high and lifted up. Right? Mount Zion is a place of peace and rest. It's a, a holy city. It's a holy place where God and the Lamb have made their home Among their redeemed people. All right, so I want you to hold on to that definition and try to understand the contrast that we see here between what we've been studying in the past weeks. Because the context helps us to understand why God has shifted away from the vision of these beasts to the vision of Christ upon Mount Zion. In chapters 12 through 13, We saw the dark and lowly valley where the dragon seeks to devour. We saw the hideous beast from the sea who's made up of all of these different creatures and he's making war upon the faithful. And then we saw the lying false prophet who who promotes idolatry in the world. That's what we've been studying. That's where we've been standing in the, the text for the last several weeks. And these images from these chapters form a dark and evil and terrifying and corrupting and blasphemous picture in our minds. And it's all representative of the spirit spiritual forces of darkness at work in our world today. And yet here, our gaze has shifted away from all of that to Mount Zion, this this beautiful, prophetic, figurative place where the lamb who was slain yet lives stands and he's surrounded by his people and those people have been sealed with his name and the name of his father on. The point of this passage is to show the contrast. And the contrast couldn't be more polarizing but it shows a spiritual representation of our world today. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God share the same globe. The wheat and the tares are growing in the same field. Unbelievers are in the valley gathered around the beast and the followers of Christ are secure in Zion in the presence of the Lamb. And even though we walk among the, the, the Wickedness of this world, even though we live in, in the reality of the here and now, this spiritual reality is laid over us. But who are these 144,000 people whose, whose name, who have God's name written on their foreheads? And you might remember that we've met these people before as well. We've not only seen the Lamb before, we've not only studied Zion already in our study in the Revelation, but we've also met this 144,000 people in Revelation chapter 7. This is the same group of people who were sealed before the seventh seal was broken. Right? They were sealed by God, protected by God, before His judgment fell. Do you, you probably don't remember that. Just write it down in your notes, go back and look at it. It'll be great. This is the the, the group of people that were referred to in Revelation chapter 7 as the great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation and people and language. These are the ones that the elder told to John. They are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, this is a reference to those who trust in Christ. And I think the best way to interpret this number of 144,000 is basically the same way I taught you when we were back in Revelation chapter 7. The best way to interpret this number is the same way we interpret most of the numbers in the Revelation. We interpret them symbolically or figuratively. This number serves as a symbolic representation of all of the people of God, from faithful old covenant saints represented by the 12 patriarchs, to the faithful New Covenant Christians represented by the 12 apostles. In other words, the 144,000 is the result of multiplying 12 by 12 by 1,000. The number 12 represents in apocalyptic literature and the way that numerology comes to us, it represents perfection, while the number 10 represents a multitude. The number 1,000 represents a great multitude. And so when you put all of this together and you understand this symbolically, what it's saying is that this is a perfect multitude. This is the complete family of God. The fullness of God's covenant people are dwelling with the Lamb in a secure place. The 144,000 refers to Old Covenant saints and New Covenant saints. This is all the people of God, all the true believers from every age who hold fast to God's promise that they will be saved from their sin by the Messiah that He will send. Old Testament saints look forward in faith that God would provide a salvation. And the New Testament saints, that is us, we look back to the salvation that God has provided. And here in this vision, all of us are secure in the presence of the Lamb who stands in our midst. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention over the last... 30 plus weeks we've been studying this, but that same language, that same idea has been seen over and over and over again, all the way back to the very beginning when we, we find out that the lampstands that, that Christ is walking around is those lampstands represent the church and we are the church and Christ is walking among us. When we got into the seals, we were protected, we were sealed by Christ before the judgment is to come so that we can live in this dark world while holding fast to the truth of our Savior. Before the trumpets are blown, God measured us out to protect us because we are now the temple of God dwelling upon earth. And even though the enemy is seeking to destroy the temple, and even though we will face persecution, nothing can separate us from the promises that God has made to bring us into eternity. And now in this new vision, this new series of visions, we're seeing the same reality being envisioned for us in a new way. And by the way, we're going to see it again. And we start reading about the bowls of wrath that are poured out. This is helping us understand that even though the dark reality of the beast in this world is present, those who believe and trust in Christ have been sealed and perfected and we are with him and he he walks among us. The dragon is near, but he has no claim on us. The beast has no claim on us because we belong both body and soul to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. I believe that the best way to understand this vision and what we can take away from this vision is is not necessarily to look to some reality that's happening in the future, some literal future, but a symbolic presence. And it's intended to give us confidence in Christ today. Because I don't know about you, but well, let me just ask the question do you see the influence of, of Satan in our world? Do you see the idols of man being presented as though we're supposed to put our hope and trust and confidence in them? Do you hear lies that would try to cause you to believe that the reality of God's Word is not true and is not trustworthy? Yes and amen. And those things are the result of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet in our world. But we can be confident that even though those things are there, We see this vision and we're reminded that Christ is real and He's standing upon the throne. He was slain, yet He lives. And He's marked us out as His people who trust in Him so that we're actually, even though we're not not there yet, we already dwell um, with Him in that beautiful symbolic place known as Zion. This vision is meant to put steel in our spines because we know that by faith in Christ, we belong to Jesus. He's bought us with a price, and nothing that Satan can do will wash his name from our foreheads nor our hearts. Our Savior is with us, and we are bound to him. And in reality, we're here, but in this vision, we are standing in the place that he has prepared for those who love him. And that kind of deals with that already and not yet reality that we live in as the people of God today. So that's just the first part. That's, that's the picture of the Lamb and the 144,000 on Mount Zion. But what are the 144,000 doing? What are we doing? Well, let's look at the next passage. Look at verse 2, and we'll see that we're singing a song, the song of the redeemed. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song. Now, I would understand that the word they there, that demonstrative pronoun, is pointing back to the 144,000, and we're singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, I did something that I do often this week. i it, I had a little idea come into my mind about music and about songs as I was reading this, and I decided I'm going to do a, a search and see what are the top 10 most popular songs in the history of history, you know, just history of wor- the world. And, and I did that, and I was absolutely disappointed at the songs that made the top 10. Don't do that unless you want to be disappointed. The, the song or the list of songs that are the most popular in history that is determined by how long they stay at the top of the billboard charts, right? So however many people are listening to them, downloading them and paying attention to them. And here's just part of that list. Um, number nine was the Macarena. So you share my disappointment, right? Um, Number six was Leanne Rimes' How Do I Live. It's not a bad song. I don't know if it's a top ten song, but evidently. Number four was Mack the Knife, one of those old songs. Amen. Hey, hey, there's some good stuff in that, that old music that doesn't get listened to. Number two was The Twist by Chubby Checker. I was actually surprised by that. And then number one was Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. I, exactly. That's, that's my reaction. How, how, I mean, to be honest, not a single one of these songs would have made it anywhere near the top of my list of top. T- I mean, there's not any Bob Dylan on this. There's no Johnny Cash on this. I, I honestly expected to see the Beatles at the top of the list, and that's not even there. I, I was really disappointed in this. Now, we all have different opinions when it comes to music, I'm sure. We have different preferences when it comes to what we like to listen to. But I think, I hope, we can all agree that life would be dull indeed if, if music played no part in it. Right? In this vision... We see the song of the redeemed. It splashes onto the scene. It doesn't dominate the scene. Mount Zion and the Lamb dominate the scene. But the song of the redeemed splashes onto the scene. And and it's a song about the gospel. It's a song being sung by those who've been redeemed out of the world. It's a song about Christ and what He's done to save us from our sin. It's the song that is only known and only sung by those who are followers of Christ, those who've been redeemed from the earth, and is a song that all of us, as the people of God, we should know by heart. Now, John tells us here that it's a new song, and, and you, you've heard that language before. You, you've perhaps understood that the idea of a new song is sung by God's people. You can see it going all the way back to um, the Exodus account, even even beyond that. And and from that point forward, the, the people of God would sing what they would refer to as a new song simply because God did something new in the life of His people. A new song is a song written to celebrate the work of God. And in this vision, Mount Zion rings with a new song because the Lamb has accomplished redemption for all of his people, which means that this is a gospel song. Y'all know that old hymn, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long? This is a, this is, that's what this is. This is the song about Christ and what he's done. And it specifically focuses on the work of redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? Redeemed. The, the word redeemed is an accounting term, and it, and it signifies that a price has been paid. A purchase price has been paid for a particular object. And, and the, the object that has been purchased is us. Now, think about that for a minute. We don't often speak of ourselves in terms of being someone else's property, but the Bible uses this language all the time. We have been bought with a price. The price was the blood of our Savior. And we have been bought back from our devotion to Satan, sin, and death. We've been bought out of slavery to become a servant of the Lord. In fact, the Bible not only uses the language of us being bought, but the Bible uses that language of slavery to describe both our spiritual condition prior to faith in Christ, and our spiritual condition after faith in Christ. And again, we don't like that language, but it's all over Scripture. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And we like to think of sin as that thing that, you know, we kind of understand it, and, you know, it's an issue, but it's not a real big problem in my life. It's really something I feel like I have under control And yet the scriptures tell us you don't have it under control. It has you under its control. That's why it calls you a slave to sin. The scriptures make very clear that apart from faith in Christ, we are enslaved to sin. And then it even goes further and says not only are we enslaved to sin, but we've been sold to the master that is death because the wages of sin is death. See, Jesus isn't worried about hurting our feelings so much as he's worried about making sure we know the truth. And the truth is that we are far more sinful than we care to admit. In Genesis chapter six and verse five, if you're doing the math, that's on page six of the book. God gives a description of the sinfulness of man that has spread in just two chapters. By the way, the first new generation of children born into a sinful world were Cain and Abel. And you know how that ended, right? One rises up and murders the other. Sin doesn't have a very good track record, so to speak. And then just two chapters later, as God looks out upon the the sin in the world, it says this in verse 5, "...the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." Brother and sisters, that's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Sin is not something we have under control. Apart from Christ, sin has us under its control. And this is our natural state apart from faith in Christ and the forgiveness that he works in us. We are slaves to sin and the wages of sin is death. But this song is reminding us, it's telling us, and we are declaring that we have been redeemed from that sinful slavery. We've been rescued from our slavery to sin. Jesus came and lived and died to ransom us to God, to ransom us away from our slavery to sin. He freed us from the captivity to the tyrant of sin and judgment and damnation, and he endured the cross in order to do so, to ransom us away, to redeem us, to make us his people. And that's not the end of what he accomplished Jesus has not relegated us now as his happy slaves. He hasn't relegated us to the kids' table. He hasn't given us tickets to the cheap seats in the stadium. We're actually around his throne in the closest proximity possible to God, and we are singing the song of the redeemed that no one in all creation knows but us. That's the picture that we see here. We have been redeemed from slave status to become sons and daughters of the King, and we are gathered around His throne singing His praises. We sing His song of love. We sing His song of grace. We sing of the glory of our Redeemer who endured the cross to set us free. There is no greater song. I don't care what the billboard charts say. There is no greater song in all the universe than the song of our Redeemer. So we've seen the people and the Lamb standing upon Mount Zion. We've seen the song of the redeemed and been reminded of what we've been saved from and what we've been saved by. Now let's look at the faithfulness of this group of people. Look at verses 4 and 5. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was, uh, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now the contrast continues here. We've, we've gone from the valley of darkness and the beast and the false prophet and the dragon to the mountain of Zion with the Lamb, and now we're focusing in on the people surrounding the Lamb. This is a vision or contrast of God's people over and against those who worship the beast. And once again, I believe this should be understood symbolically. If this were taken literally, by the way, then only celibate men who've never lied and in no way are to blame for their sin, only those would be counted amongst the 144,000. But that's not the reality of the people of God, right? We've been saved from our sin. We've been redeemed because we needed to be redeemed from all of mankind. And and he's called us to himself in repentance and faith. And the picture that we see here is symbolic in a beautiful way. If we interpret this figuratively, then we see this as a symbolic reference to those who've not defiled themselves with sexual immorality in pursuit of worldly pleasure and worldly favor. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but a couple of weeks ago, as we were studying the, the beast and the dragon, and they were trying to entice the, the men and women of the world by sexual immorality. That's part of the, the package. And yet these John describes as completely chaste. This is a symbolic reference to all those who follow the lamb on the narrow and dangerous path, rather than those who follow the beast in, in, in the broad way that leads to destruction. And this is a reference to those who speak the truth of God rather than those who repeat and believe the lies of the false prophet. So again, we see a contrast here. And this is not a description telling us about some group of super saints, some select group of perfect Christians. This is about us. This is about sinner saints who've been redeemed away from mankind. The point is the contrast between those who worship the beast and those who follow the Lamb. And then this serves not only as an encouragement for us, but also as a, a motivating direction for us. Because if we are, if we if we follow Christ, then we're called to live lives of faithfulness. If you profess to follow Christ, if you profess to be among the redeemed, then your life should bear fruit. Many people will say, "I want all that Jesus promises." I want his forgiveness, and I want heaven, and I certainly want eternal happiness, but you know what? I really don't want to give up my freedom. I kind of like what this world has to offer. Many people will say, I don't mind going to church. I'll even tell other people that I'm a Christian when when it serves my purposes. I might even work in the nursery from time to time, but I want to reserve the right to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. I'll accept Jesus, but I want to live my life my own way. Friend, let me just tell you, that's not Christianity. That is a lie that our culture teaches all the time, but it's not biblical Christianity. It's dead faith. That's a person living under the delusion that he or she can have the benefits of following Jesus without the actual following part. And that doesn't exist. That's a profession of faith that is verbal, but not moral. That's a person who might call him Savior, but not submit to him as Lord. And biblically speaking, it's not true. So don't believe the lie that you saw on TV or from that guy at the pulpit at that other church. Believe the truth of the gospel. Jesus once said this to a crowd. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? very simple there. You call me Lord. You say I'm your master and you exult when it, because you say it twice, Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I command you to do. It's almost like he's saying, you don't understand the relationship between lordship and obedience. Brothers and sisters, we must not miss that lesson. Don't call Jesus Lord with your mouth and then turn and treat his commands like they are optional. That's not how it works. That's not how lordship works. That's not what Christianity is all about. One of the distinguishing marks of a true convert is that they've surrendered their will to Jesus. And what John is describing here is this group of people who have embraced the calling of Christ. Not only are they singing the song of his redeemed or his redemption, but now their their lives are a reflection of the faithfulness that he's called them to. And yes, I believe it is symbolic language, but it's still getting at the same truth. A gospel that is powerless to change your life is not a very powerful gospel. And let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God. Grace that leaves you wallowing in sin is cheap grace. But the grace that truly saves is also a grace that changes us from being sons of darkness who might mill around in that valley of the beast to be sons and daughters of light, who are that city on a hill. And that's what Christ has called us to. And before you get upset and say, well, you're just being legalists, let me be clear that I'm not talking about legalism at all. I'm talking about biblical Christianity. Legalism is the belief that you can earn God's favor through your obedience, that you can earn salvation through works righteousness. That's not what I'm saying at all. Biblical Christianity teaches that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, but that grace and that faith and our Christ does not leave us in our old state. We are then called to put off the old and put on the new, and the grace of God enables us to do that. Those who are born again by faith in Christ are enabled by God's grace to repent of our sin, to turn away from our sin and to grow so that we become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. And that might be a slow process for a lot of us. But if your faith is true, it's happening. So we've seen three things in this five-verse vision. We've seen the Lamb and His people. We've seen the song of the redeemed. And we've seen the reflection of Christ's faithfulness in the obedience of the redeemed. And all of these are meant to contrast with the visions that we've seen thus far. But what can we take away directly from this message to help us live faithfully today? Three things. Number one, the Lord is with his people always. The Lord is with his people always. When Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he meant it. And though he is not with us in body presently now, his spirit and his word and his people are. And he hears us and he knows what we're going through and he supplies the strength that we need for whatever the trial is for the day. No matter what you are going through, no matter what you will face in the future, the Lord is with you. He knows your fears, he knows your failures, he knows where you stumble and he knows the insecurity you feel when it happens. He knows your plans and then he knows His plans for you. And even though we map out our course, we know that the Lord is the one that directs our steps. And He knows this contrast. He knows the tactics of the enemy. He knows that the valley of darkness is not far away. But no matter how dark the road, He is still the good shepherd who's going to lead us through the valley and out the other side. The Lord is with His people always. So whatever you're dealing with, whatever temptations are there, whatever struggles you're having, keep fighting and don't stray from Him. Let His love and His mercy and His truth bring you back to His side. Let His kindness lead you to repentance and to renew your trust in Him because He is with us and He will never leave. That's the first thing we can take away from this. The second thing is that we should sing the praise of our Redeemer more often. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you just think about worship on Sundays? Do you think that the one who redeemed us from an eternal judgment deserves our songs, four songs or five songs on one day a week? No. Worship is not exclusive to Sunday mornings. In fact, I would argue that one of the best ways that you can prepare your heart to worship on the Lord's day is to worship Him every other day of the week. Corporate worship is sweet. There's no doubt about it. But our corporate worship together can be made sweeter when we've been engaging in private worship throughout the week. And, and I don't know if you've even heard that language of private worship or personal devotion or whatever you might want to call it. But you should be taking the time to read God's Word on a daily basis. And let your knowledge of the scriptures and your knowledge of your Savior and your understanding of the, the life that you're living and walking in, let that move you to, to prayer, to pray for yourself, to pray for your family, to pray for your church, to pray for your neighbors, but also let it motivate you to sing the praises of God. Now that might be a strange thing for some of us because you're just not real comfortable. Even when you're here, you're just standing and listening to everybody sing. It's okay if you sing in your car when nobody's there. Or if you sing in the shower, the acoustics are great. And maybe you need to find some really good music. I I guarantee you there are dozens of people here that could help you find good, gospel-centered, and biblically faithful music for you to listen to. Or maybe you're one of those people that is so gifted and inclined that you can play that music for yourself. But here's the point. The song of the redeemed is not one we're just going to sing in heaven and it's not one that should just be relegated to Sunday mornings. We should be singing the songs of our pra- in praise of our Savior every day. God has made us uniquely in such a way that songs specifically, and hopefully good gospel songs, stick in our minds. You might not remember anything I've said, you know, apart from the whole thing about the, the top 10 songs of the history, you might not remember much of what I've said, but you will probably go away from this place today and one of the songs will just be on loop in your brain. God made us that way because songs teach, songs stick in our minds, and good songs teach us. So, put good songs in your brain and let them teach you about the gospel of our Lord. So, number one, Let's understand and remember that the Lord is always with his people. Number two, let's sing the praises of our Redeemer more and more. Number three, pursue faithfulness in new areas of your life. When I first became a believer in Christ, I, had, I got saved when I was in college, and, and my life leading up to that point was uh, nothing to uh, praise, right? But when I first became a believer at that stage of my life, I took for granted that Christians should read their Bibles, and God just surrounded me with some people that pointed me in a good and godly direction. And it seemed like every day God was revealing through my study of Scripture or through my interaction with some other brother or sister or some book I was reading by John Piper or John MacArthur, God was just revealing over and over new areas of sin that I didn't even realize were there. Anybody identify with that? And, and as I was reading and as I was studying, as I was learning, it's like light bulbs were going off all over the place and, and God was showing me areas of sin in my, in my speech or in my thoughts or in my actions that I needed to repent of. And at the same time, I understood that if I'm putting this off, I'm supposed to be putting on new faithfulness to Christ, like reading scripture and worshiping with him and serving him in in his church and loving my neighbors well and sharing the gospel and all of these things. It was a magical time in my life because everything was becoming new. Now, if if you've experienced that and you can identify with that, maybe you can also identify with the fact that there came a time down the road where I just became complacent. And I became comfortable with saying, yeah, when I got saved, my life was like this, and then God did all of these things, and and when someone asked me, well, what's God doing in your life right now? I'm like, that's a good question. I'm not real sure. Christ doesn't want us to just look back on some high hallmark season of life and say, yeah, that's when I was being really faithful, and that's when God was moving. This should be the, the consistent experience of the life of God's people until he calls us home. So maybe you haven't grown. Maybe you haven't repented of sin in a long time, brother or sister. You need to ask. You need to study God's word. Read God's word. Let's say you start in a book like 1 John. 1 John is pretty clear about sin. And you need to ask the Lord to reveal areas of sin in your life that he wants you to turn away from and repent of probably won't take long. And if you, if you really don't know, just ask your wife. I'm sorry, that was a bad joke. Ask the brothers and sisters around you who know you well. They will help you. But we need to understand that God has called us to faithfulness, not just at one season of our life, but every season of our life. He wants us to continue growing. He wants us to continue repenting of new sins that His Word reveals, continue finding new ways to serve. There are ways that you could serve the Lord in this church right now. There are, there are opportunities. Maybe you should step up and do that. New ways for you to become more like Him. So those are the three things I would encourage you to think about, to do in response to this. Know that, this, that the Lord is with us. Sing the song of your Redeemer and pursue faithfulness in new areas of your life. So as we close and consider the contrast of Satan's influence on the world and Christ's influence on the world, embrace that you are contributing to that contrast in the way that you pursue faithfulness. Are you shining the light of Christ into the world? Are you allowing the light that he has placed in you to shine forth? Don't forget, we are that city on a hill. We are called to be salt and light. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. be faithful to him. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together to worship and to learn. And I do pray that not only would we understand your word more, but that we would respond to it faithfully. Help us to remember your promises that you are with us and you will never leave us. Father, give us a heart and a mind that longs to sing the praise of our Redeemer, to remember what you've done for us and and to worship you and thank you for it. And Lord, don't let us be complacent. Spur us on to love and good deeds. Don't let us get get comfortable looking back at some high watermark moment in our life, but let us pursue faithfulness today. Show us areas where we need to grow. Show us areas where we can be more faithful and let us have the influence on this world that you want us to have. Even if that influence is small, maybe it's just our family or our neighbors or those around us, or maybe it's someone at work, or maybe that influence would be greater, but help us to be faithful in new areas of our lives for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.